0: This is True Crime Exposed, and I'm your host, Kayla Waters. Welcome to our show where we try to put victims' stories forward and be a voice when they can no longer have one. Thanks for joining my co host each week, Alicia Jenkins, as we dive into these stories with you. Welcome back everyone. The case I have for you today is a web of deceit. Pay attention if you want to follow along because there are a lot of players here. I got more than I expected when I dove into this case and it opened my eyes to just how much corruption is hiding behind the scenes. With that, are you ready for today's case? Okay, so hopefully you can keep up with this one. Let me know if you're confused at any part because there's like a lot of characters in this story, which I didn't think there would be because I found this case on the like Charlie project where you know they detail like missing persons and unsolved cases, and it seemed very small, like, there's really no other reporting on the case. I couldn't find any other podcasts on the case. And then I ended up through Reddit finding one really deep dive, like intensive reporting on this case through the New Times, the Miami New Times by Bob Norman. This is like the one reporting on this case. So there are two missing people in this case, but that reporting basically focuses on one of the missing people persons because he worked with um, this guy's wife, I think on that article. Um, So unfortunately, I don't know a lot about the second person, but I'm giving all the information that I know. So On December 9th, 1983, 23-year-old Donna Weaver straps her twin daughters into their car seats and makes her way to the Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport in Florida. And she's there to pick up her husband. This is 30-year-old Gary Weaver, who is flying home from the Bahamas. The family lives in a little apartment nearby in Coral Springs, and the next day, December 10th, is their first wedding anniversary, and Donna is anxiously awaiting Gary's arrival so that they can celebrate. And this celebration feels even sweeter because not only will they be together on their anniversary, but they'll be reunited after Gary's week-long business trip. He had been gone since December 2nd. And once they arrive there at the airport, Donna grabs her daughters out of her 1977 Oldsmobile and they settle in there at the airport awaiting Gary's return. Donna knew when to be at the airport because Gary had called her just before while he was at the Nassau Airport in the Bahamas. So, Gary, he had already done this business trip a couple times before. There in Florida, he worked as a bulldozer for a friend he had known since childhood. And this friend is named Randy Kruh. Donna had never loved the idea of Gary traveling to the Bahamas while she stayed home with their twins, but the problem with Gary's day-to-day job was that he simply was not making enough money to cover the bills. He brought home only roughly $300 per week, which would quickly dissipate between rent, groceries, diapers, and other necessities. So when Randy offered Gary the opportunity to travel to the islands to fix boats for around $150 per day, Donna couldn't protest. They needed the money, and as much as she hated him being gone, that money was worth it. Or so she thought. But those thoughts would change on that December day while Donna waited at the airport long after Gary was supposed to be there. He never came home, and he never would that extra money was never worth losing her husband forever. She didn't recognize immediately at the airport that Gary would never return. She first told herself that he must have gotten delayed. And remember, this is back in like 1983. So you're not texting on airplanes or like using Wi-Fi like you can now. Like, hey, I'm not going to make it. Did he just call her on her home phone? Yeah, he had called her to her home phone before he was leaving on like his last flight home. You know, so she's just telling herself he must not have made it, must have gotten delayed. But as the worry of what could have happened to Gary set in, Donna was filled with regret about the last time she saw her husband face to face. She had driven him to the airport at 6 a.m. on December 2nd while their neighbor watched the babies. Gary wanted Donna to sit and wait with him until it was time for him to fly out but Donna didn't like being away from the twins. She wanted to get home and feed them, and she wishes she would have stayed instead of giving him a quick hug and kiss before rushing off. As Donna left the airport on December 9th with her twins in tow, she hoped that Gary would return on a following flight and catch a cab home. The family was supposed to head from the airport to the Mothers of Twins Club where Santa was making a special visit. So Donna wasn't extremely worried yet and decides to take her girls for their visit with Santa and then hopefully meet Gary at home. According to Bob Norman with the Miami New Times, Donna had spoken to Gary several times through his stay in the Bahamas. He mentioned that he was staying in a really nice house that looked out onto the water. The man hosting them was named Jeff Fisher. And it was just before 6 p.m. on December 9th when Donna returned home from the visit with Santa. And still, Gary was not home. So she started calling Jeff Fisher's home down in Nassau. But there was no answer. So she started paging Randy Krug. And this is Gary's boss that set him up with the job. But he was not calling Donna back. And she wondered why no one was answering. So Donna has a pretty sleepless night and she awakes the next day filled with anxiety. They were supposed to be celebrating their anniversary this day. And Donna keeps trying to get a hold of Randy and Jeff, but the day passes with no word from either of them until finally Jeff Fisher does answer later that day. Jeff didn't seem worried at all he told Donna that everything was okay Gary was fine he ended up being delayed due to the job that he was doing down there in the Bahamas but that Gary would make contact with her soon so there was a small sense of relief hearing that Gary was all right but there was also this pit in Donna's stomach telling her that things just weren't right because it didn't line up Gary would normally your husband would call yeah She's like, my husband would call me on my anniversary. Yeah. He also knew I was coming to pick him up from the airport. Like he called her right before he was coming home. He was at the airport when he called her. So she's like kind of happy that she hears he's fine, but she's also like not sure if this is the truth. Have him call me and I'll listen to his voice. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'll actually hear from him. So she has another sleepless night, and now Donna is reaching for anything she can find about when Gary will return home. She remembers there was this man who had purchased engine parts for Gary to take down to the Bahamas on this trip. That man was named John Sims, and he lived in Delray Beach, Florida. He told her that he wasn't sure what was going on with Gary, but he agreed to try and find out. This same day, Donna was able to get in touch with Jeff Fisher again. Remember, Jeff is the one that Gary's staying with down in the Bahamas. And now, Jeff is telling Donna that Gary had gone out on a little work trip, but he hasn't returned. Jeff tells Donna that he already contacted the U.S. Coast Guard, and there was a thorough search being conducted. Ultimately, Jeff says that multiple departments are now searching for Gary, including the Aviation Administration. But wouldn't they call his wife? I know, right? Thanks for the info, but can they call me? Yeah. (laughs) Like I need to hear from them. And in this moment, Donna feels like she's going to throw up because this is the first moment that it really sinks in that her husband probably isn't coming back. And her husband, Gary Weaver, is not the only man missing from this specific business trip. He was traveling with another man man named Jairo Sanchez. Jairo also spoke to his family last on December 9th, the same day Donna spoke with Gary. And he had also told his family he was about to return home to Florida. But like Gary, he never did. But Jairo did tell his family something a little different about the business trips he was taking to the Bahamas. He told them that he was importing television sets and other appliances to Colombia through the Bahamas which is different than what Gary told Donna that he was fixing boats in the Bahamas So that's just a little odd Sounds like drug smuggling <laughs> Yeah you're you're on the right track And so Hiro, he's the one I don't know a lot of info about, sadly, but he was also living in Florida like Gary, and it seems that his family, once he went missing, they didn't really continue looking for him because they got threatened that if they did, their lives would be in danger. And so... With that, he just kind of vanishes. And like I said, this other article that I got all the information from by Bob Norman, it really focuses on Gary. So unfortunately, this is kind of what I know about Hairo. Hairo? How do you spell that? J-A-I-R-O. And I looked it up for pronunciation, and that's how it told me to say it. (laughs) It looks like Jairo, he was Hispanic. He was born on... Uh, May 30th, 1958. And he was 25 years old when he went missing. He was described as a Hispanic male with red hair and brown eyes. He also had a red mustache and a medium length beard at the time of his disappearance. They say on the um, charlieproject.org that he had substantial body hair and a half inch scar below his left eye. He is a native of Barranquilla, Colombia and grew up in Halea, Florida. So, and again, he's last seen with Gary Weaver on this business trip. So days after Gary was supposed to be home, the man from Delray Beach, who had apparently bought engine parts for Gary to take to the Bahamas, he shows up at the Weavers' home. This man is John Sims. He's standing in front of Donna at 9 p.m. this night, and he has another man with him, a large man who just sort of lurks behind John and doesn't say anything. John tells Donna that he's been searching for Gary for three days with his own plane and that he's only stopped to refuel the plane. He tells Donna that what he is hearing is that Gary's plane crashed in the ocean. Donna can't contain her sobs as she holds her babies through this news. John tells her that he doesn't know much besides that the plane went down somewhere between Nassau and Columbia. But this stops Donna dead in her tracks, because what does he mean, Columbia? Why would Gary be going there? Again, from what Donna knew, Gary had no reason to head to Colombia. But this information does lend credit to what Jairo told his family, that he was importing television sets to, to Colombia from the Bahamas. So by 11 p.m. that same night, this night that John Sims comes over to Donna's house, he leaves, you know, him and that silent man leave her home. And by 11 p.m., Donna looks up the phone number for the United States Coast Guard office in Broward County, even though Jeff Fisher had advised her not to contact them. An officer answers and Donna starts rapid firing questions about her husband's disappearance. But there is confusion on the other end of the line. The officer responds that they don't have any information on Gary Weaver. So Jeff Fisher, the man he was staying with in the Bahamas, had lied to her. He never called the Coast Guard and no one was actually looking for Gary. Had John Sims really even been out flying around and searching for her husband? Or was that a lie too? So... Things are starting to feel completely hopeless and still Donna couldn't get a hold of Randy, her husband's boss and one of his best friends. So by midnight she calls the Coral Springs Police Department and they send an officer to her home so that she can report the disappearance of her husband. Afterwards she calls the Coast Guard a second time reporting that her husband is apparently missing after crashing into the water. But the officer isn't much help because he tells her that in order for the Coast Guard to go searching for him, they need a confirmed flight plan, a flight number, etc. And she doesn't have any of that information. So the following day, Donna calls the Federal Aviation Administration three times. They're also no help. And she keeps paging Randy before finally he calls back. Randy is Gary's boss, his best friend, knows Donna very well. And he acts as if he didn't know Gary was even missing. He told her that he had no idea what was going on and that he would be right over to her house. When Randy arrived, he seemed upset. But again, he wasn't much help on the details of where Gary was going or what he was doing down in the Bahamas. Randy said he didn't know much about the trip. So Randy was back in Florida? Yeah, Randy was in Florida and he would just send Gary and I think Cairo down there to the Bahamas for these work trips. Oh, yeah. So he was already back in Florida the whole time that Gary was down there. So he's saying like, oh, I didn't even know he was missing. I didn't know he didn't come home. So he says he doesn't know much about this trip, but but that he did know what plane Gary was likely flying on. Gary explained that his contacts down in the Bahamas often used the Beechcraft Queen Air tail number N88KP. Randy also says that Gary was likely on this plane while on the way to Columbia, although he claimed to not know why Gary would be headed to Columbia. At least this conversation gave Donna a lead to follow. So she calls the Nassau Airport with the tail number Randy provided her with. An airport official confirms that there was a Beechcraft aircraft that departed at 1046 a.m. on December 9th. But only three people were aboard. One was the pilot named Boudreaux, Boudreaux. And the plane was going to a private island named Hog Key in the Exuma Keys in the Southern Bahamas. However, according to the airport official, the flight was never confirmed because the pilot did not radio after taking off. And because of this, the Coast Guard still would not take on the task of searching for Gary. Donna called everyone she could think of. The only helpful organization was the American Embassy in Nassau. They got her in contact with the Bahamian Defense Force, who did conduct an air search, which did not result in any findings. Donna felt completely hopeless. It seemed that no one had any definite answers on what exactly Gary was doing, and it seemed that no one wanted to look for him and Hiro. Didn't they deserve more of an effort than this? The way Donna and Gary met was at a restaurant where she was eating lunch with her mom there in Florida. The handsome, brown eyed, brown haired, freckly man with a mustache confidently walked right up to her and introduced himself. Donna had just recently moved to South Florida from West Long Branch, New Jersey, and she came with her mother who was living in Coral Springs. Donna grew up surrounded by law enforcement with uncles who were lawmen and a grandfather named Jack who was a town councilman and construction contractor. Her grandpa basically built the police department in West Long Branch. This instilled in her a trust of authority, which was confusing right now as no one she contacted could help her much with Gary's disappearance. After Donna met Gary at that restaurant, they were inseparable. He wooed her, often bringing her hand-picked wildflowers, watching the stars with her, and showing her what love is supposed to feel like. Everyone was drawn to Gary. He was one of those people who made friends with strangers every day. He was hyperactive, always moving, animated, and just fun. He also loved joking with people. For example, he would throw golf balls onto the fairway behind his apartment building and he would laugh as golfers would get confused about which ball was theirs and where the other ones came from. Donna would roll her eyes at his teasing spirit, although she also loved it. Just five months into dating, Gary and Donna were living together and pregnant with twins. They married on December 10, 1982 in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Gary's boss, Randy Kruh, was his best man in the wedding. The babies, Lauren and Leanna, were born healthy on May 16, 1983. Gary doted on the girls. He took absolute pride in his role as their father, and he loved them with his whole heart. He would have never wanted to leave them behind with no memories of him as their father. He just wanted to provide a good life for his girls. But by taking a risk to do that, Gary became involved in the wrong crowd and was surrounded in the Bahamas by people he could not trust. The officer in Florida that was assigned to Gary's missing persons case, Sergeant John Coben, he asked Donna a question. Was your husband involved in drug smuggling? She was taken back by this question, and she told the officer, absolutely not. Like Gary, involved in drugs, she just could not believe that. But unfortunately for Donna, the investigation would prove otherwise. Sergeant Caban found that John Sims, the man who came to Donna's house claiming to have been looking for Gary with his aircraft, the one who had apparently bought engine parts for Gary to take to the Bahamas with him, Well, it turns out he did have a past of being arrested on drug charges and was known as a suspected drug smuggler. Oh, and that airplane, the Beechcraft, it was also known to have been involved in trips where people were smuggling drugs. So, like you said earlier, yes, drug smuggling. Oh my gosh. And what's sad in this case is I think Gary wasn't really high up involved I think he was really just took an opportunity to make this extra cash with a friend of his his boss and he ended up being kind of a nobody in the drug world that would be murdered for problems between all these people higher in it and the thing with um like Donna didn't think he would be involved in drugs at all at the beginning because that's just not who she knew him to be but looking back now she sees that their like marriage and having babies happened really quickly and she maybe didn't know his past all that well because his family he's from Ohio originally and his family including his brother Tim We're not necessarily shocked that he would have been involved because he did actually have a drug problem before moving out to Florida. No. So Donna didn't really know this side of him, but other people did. Huh. So shortly after Donna and her girl's first heartbreaking Christmas without Gary, she receives a call from a man she remembers being at her twins' christening not too long ago. His name was Hernando, and he was Colombian. She only met him briefly because Gary's boss, Randy, had brought him over to the christening. Hernando tells Donna that he believes Gary's plane was actually intercepted over Cuban waters. He wants to discuss this further, so he asks Donna to meet up she agrees to, which when I initially read that, I was like, no, do not go meet up with this guy who's calling you. I know, I don't think at this point she's even thinking drugs. Even though that, F- that not the FBI, even though that agent, that officer had asked her, it just wasn't on her mind. And I don't think at this point she understood how dangerous all the people were. She agrees to meet up with him and um she goes to Hollywood Florida and stops in a parking lot of an Amtrak station soon after she gets there Hernando gets there and he asks her to get into his red sedan And again, she does it, which again, I'm like, no, don't do it. But she does end up being okay. Once she's in the car, he tells her that she has to stop talking to the police because Jeff Fisher, the man Gary was staying with in the Bahamas, was starting to get mad. She was shocked because why would he be mad at her? She was mad at literally everyone involved because no one would give her the answer she was looking for. According to Bob Norman with the Miami New Times, Donna yelled at Hernando and said, quote, you tell Jeff Fisher I'm the one who is angry. I want Gary's things and I want his clothes and I want the money he's owed. I can't even pay the rent. I want every single thing Gary left at that house. And it wasn't long after this that the investigation into Gary's case through the Coral Springs Police Department comes to a halt. They deem it inactive pending until new information is brought forward, leaving Donna without much closure, but she has to push forward. So with Gary's disappearance, Donna was now a single mother to twins and she had to provide for them, so she took up cocktail waitressing so that she could spend the days with her girls and work while they slept with the supervision of a babysitter. She kept thinking back to the information coming forward about Gary's involvement with drug smuggling. It was hard for her to believe or accept because, like I said, she had never really seen the side of Gary. She never had seen him touch a hard drug, although he did admit to her once that he had a problem with cocaine when he lived in his hometown of Convoy, Ohio. So, a year passes by with no new information. Donna did the best she could to move forward, but she wondered every single day about Gary. Could he be alive? What happened? Why did this happen? And then, about a year after he disappeared, John Sims knocks on her door. Do you remember who this is? This is the guy who bought- Engine parts? Engine parts. Yeah, already came to her house- said that he was looking for him with his own plane this is that guy so he just shows up at her house a year later and this time he's crying he keeps saying to donna it's not right what they did to gary and this is freaking her out so she asks him to leave and with that he hands her a thousand dollars in cash and he leaves so super weird interaction yeah And this felt like a punch to the gut because what did they do to Gary that was so horrible? This man is giving her money and bawling about it a year later. And this conversation sat heavy in Donna's heart as she pondered the possibilities of what Gary went through and that weight grew even heavier when very soon after this conversation with John Sims, Donna is called by Randy Kruh. This is Gary's boss, Gary's friend. And Randy tells her that John Sims has now also been killed in a plane crash in the Atlantic Ocean near Palm Beach. The one who gave him a $1,000 and then how many days later? The one that just came crying, saying it's not right what they did to Gary. It didn't say how many days, but it said shortly after he's dead in a plane crash. Oh my gosh. It seems suspicious to me. Yeah. That two people, you know, Gary and Hyro are killed in a suspected plane crash. And now John Sims is killed in a plane crash. And Bob Norman reports that there is no record of John Sims' disappearance at the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office or the medical examiner's office. He just disappeared, kind of like Gary and Hyro did. Huh. So the situation is obviously sketch. And not only did Donna's husband disappear, but now her life was in danger too. Did it say if John Sims had a family? It didn't. It didn't really say any information about him besides that he was kind of involved there at the beginning, came back, and then died shortly after he came back. So in 1985, Donna decides to write this letter to Congress. She's detailing what happened to Gary and begging for help after explaining that her husband became involved with some really bad people. Lisa Sevier worked as an investigator for the Senate Public Works and Transportation Committee, and she comes across this letter from Donna. Lisa explained to Donna that her life was in danger and that she shouldn't speak to any more strangers on the phone, and she should never allow anyone she didn't personally know to take a picture of her or her kids. Now, nothing really comes out of this congressional investigation done through Lisa Sevier. There was a hearing, but the only thing that came out of that was some new legislation regarding rules about registering your airplane and altering fuel systems. There's nothing of justice for Gary or Hira. Lisa did write a report about the disappearances that she handed over to the Social Security Administration in 1988. And this allowed Donna to receive death benefits because they determined that Gary Weaver did in fact die. The frustrating thing about this is that Donna was not allowed to see the report because it was classified. So she didn't even know what exactly led them to this conclusion. She received an initial payout of $60,000, and then each month month after, she would receive $1,200 until her daughters turned 18 years old. But no amount of money could replace what the family had lost. Lisa Sevier made this comment that Bob Norman reported on, and she said, quote, It will never in our lifetime be in the best national interest to release those documents. She added that she was the only one with a remaining copy of the report which seems sort of weird yeah like it will never be in the best national interest to receive the report on this guy's disappearance oh my gosh (laughs) and I think we'll kind of have some answers to why in a little bit but you don't know for sure why she said that and now Donna was conflicted She felt grateful there was somewhat of an investigation done into her husband's disappearance, but she also felt like the government wanted her to stay quiet and stop looking for answers. By this point, Donna was convinced that Gary was involved in some sort of drug trafficking operation and the other men involved had killed him and Jairo as well as Jason Sims, who later disappeared. Lisa Sevier, who investigated the case, believed that it was likely that the two men were pushed out of that plane they were on on December 9th, 1983. So that's her conclusion is maybe they were pushed out of the plane. Remember, there were only reported to be like three people on that plane. So all that investigating and Social Security stuff ended in about 1988. Now we come to May of 1999. Donna is trying to move on with her life while still always searching for answers. And one night she's working her shift as a bartender there in Florida and she comes across a New Times article about Operation Airlift, which detailed the involvement of corrupt FBI agents in drug smuggling. Neither Gary or Hyra were mentioned in the article, and there were no names she did recognize, but something drew her to this article. At the very least, this Operation Airlift matched the same time frame of the men's disappearance. So Donna just straight up calls the New Times reporter and she asks him if there were any names in the records that did not appear in the article. As he starts reading off the names, Donna recognizes one, Randy Kra. He had some sort of involvement in this drug trafficking and in this moment it is confirmed. Gary's boss, his childhood friend, his best man at his wedding, that he is the man who sent Gary on that business trip. It's confirmed he is involved with this large drug smuggling ring and this corrupt FBI agent who became involved with it as well. It turns out that Randy Kra was a drug smuggling pilot in South Florida, and he was one of the largest ones. But he was also a government informant, meaning he pissed off a lot of people and made a lot of enemies. Oh my gosh. Isn't that crazy? Yes. And like, you'll see as we kind of go through these drug smugglers, Donna was... Right there like she met a lot of them but had no idea she was like on this border of like these criminals. Oh my gosh. So did Gary know he was smuggling drugs? I believe he knew what he was doing yes. But she didn't. Like I think he knew him and Hiro I'm pretty sure knew they were smuggling drugs. Obviously, Randy Randy made a lot of enemies as a drug informant, including a man named Daniel A. Mitrione Jr. Daniel was an undercover FBI agent turned into a big-time drug smuggler while running this Operation Airlift. And this Operation Airlift was done through the FBI, Now, I need to dive into Daniel Mitrion's family history a little bit, and it is wild. So Daniel's father, who is Daniel A. Mitrion Sr., he was a police chief in Indiana, and he was involved politically. He ends up an employee of the U.S. State Department, and Mitrion Sr. is sent to Brazil and Uruguay to teach public safety to their police forces down there. And when he moves to South America, his whole family comes with him, his wife, Henrietta, and all nine of their children, including Daniel Jr. So the family is down there for more than 10 years before their world was turned upside down. In 1970, Mitrion Sr. was kidnapped in Uruguay by the Tuparmo guerrilla group. And this news blows up. America became entranced with watching the reports as Mitrion Sr. was held for 11 days. This group wanted political prisoners released but the government in Uruguay would not meet their demands and because of this non-negotiation on August 10th 1970 Mitrion Sr. is found dead in the trunk of a stolen vehicle. His body was bound and gagged and he was shot twice in the head. So this is this Daniel Jr. guy's dad. Wow, okay. And this obviously devastated his wife and nine children. And all of America was grieving with them. Americans deemed Mitrion Sr. as a hero and a martyr. The president, Richard Nixon, even sent a red, white, and blue wreath to Mitrion Sr.'s funeral in Richmond, Indiana. Frank Sinatra and Jerry Lewis even held a benefit concert in Indiana to raise $20,000 for the family. People were devastated by this loss. But there was also a darker reason for Mitrion Sr.'s death that wasn't revealed until later. The police in Uruguay and CIA personnel described Mitrion Sr.'s way of teaching police in South America helpful tactics were actually ways to torture people. This included shocking people's mouths and genitals. One CIA operative from Cuba reported that Mitrion Sr. practiced and showed these torture techniques on beggars that they grabbed from the streets. And four of them died. Oh, that's crazy. So... Not great. There is a 1973 film titled State of Siege that was uh, based on Mitrion Sr.'s crimes down in Uruguay, and a former New York Times reporter named A.J. Langeth wrote a book titled Hidden Terrors that describes the CIA's ties to Mitrion Sr. The author believes that Mitrion Sr. was a man simply carrying out his country's orders, Bob Norman reports that A.J. Languth said, quote, he's proof of Hannah Arendt's theory about the banality of evil. And this phrase, banality of evil, was said by Hannah Arendt in reference to a man on trial who had displayed neither guilt for his action, actions nor hatred for those trying him because he claimed no responsibility because he was simply doing his job. So it seems that A.J. Langeth might think that the CIA had some responsibility for Mitrion Sr.'s actions in South America. So all of this brings us back to Daniel Jr., who grew up to become an FBI agent, only to become corrupt and involved with the drug smuggling world. Daniel went to the University of Maryland before serving in Vietnam and he was an adult when his father was murdered it was only a couple years later that he joins the fbi bob norman reports that daniel jr believed his father was actually murdered by his own government and he wanted to track down these killers within the u.s state department apparently daniel jr admits this in a new times 1999 interview in 1981 Daniel was working with the FBI in Miami, Florida. By January of 1982, the South Florida Drug Task Force was established by George H.W. Bush, who was the vice president at this time. And with this, the FBI took jurisdiction over narcotics cases as the war on drugs was in full swing. And this is when Daniel Jr. takes on Operation Airlift. So this all starts when a man named Hilmer Sandini becomes an informant for the FBI. Sandini and Daniel Jr. become really close. It's almost as if Daniel looked up to Sandini, who was 56 years old when they first became involved. Other agents believed that Daniel Jr. saw Sandini almost as a father figure, although he is literally a criminal who became an informant. And while Sandini was a great source of information, it was also known that he was suspected in multiple murders. So the FBI had always known that Sandini was the likely killer of restaurant owner Harold Schatz, who was murdered on Halloween in 1981. In fact, Sandini would later be convicted of this crime in 1987 after confessing that he did shoot Harold over a drug deal gone bad. The murder happened in Sandini's living room, and then he rolled Harold up in a carpet and buried him. He also had his 19-year-old daughter help him discard of Harold's body, which has never been found to this day. So this is like a web of just really messed up people. Ew, they all have a history. Yeah, it's weird. But still, like before his conviction, although he is known to likely be a killer, the FBI paid him $800 a week as an informant, and he was partnered with Daniel Jr. Now, Daniel was introduced into the drug world as an undercover agent known to the criminals as Danny Miscelli, a Chicago mobster. So Sandini and Daniel Jr. start their investigation undercover in a rental car agency near Hollywood Airport in Fort Lauderdale. However, right before the operation can begin, the owner of the rental car agency creates some problems. He was a mafia associate named Frank Esposito, and he didn't think Daniel Jr. was a mobster. He correctly guessed that he was an undercover cop and he confronted Daniel. But Frank wasn't a problem for long, because on March 30th, 1982, he was shot dead in his office. The local police immediately report to the FBI that they suspected Sandini to be the murderer. Although Daniel Jr. admits later that he suspected Sandini of committing the murder in order to keep Operation Airlift going, he downplayed it to his superiors and the FBI ignored the suspicion and pushed Frank's murder to the side. So now Sandini and Daniel Jr. move on, move forward with their operation and they move it to Hangar 24 at a smaller airport there in Fort Lauderdale. Daniel first wanted to target Paraguayan government officials working with the cocaine cartel. So he talks with those in charge at the FBI and he tells them that in order to build trust with Colombian contacts, he is going to have to allow 50 kilograms of cocaine to come into the United States without being seized. And the top officials are like, yeah, no, thank you. Like, we're going to get a lot of backlash for that. So no. (laughs) and they refuse his request can you imagine you find out later like the government's just like yeah send it in yeah (laughs) and so obviously they tell him no but this turns Daniel against his own people from here forward he told Sandini that he wanted in on the big money with legit drug smuggling So we know that Daniel Jr. and Randy Kruh were involved because on Randy's 30th birthday, he introduces his sister, Tammy Kruh, to a man named Danny Maselli. Remember, this is his undercover name. Randy was holding his birthday on a 65-foot yacht, and Tammy was having a great time with men dressed to the nines and all the high-end food and liquor. It turns out that Randy Kraw had been flying drugs for Danny, a.k.a. Daniel Jr. He would take marijuana from Jamaica and cocaine from Colombia back to the Andros Island in the Bahamas. Then the drugs were picked up by boats there in the Bahamas and brought to Florida. Randy Krah often flew alongside Luis Bernardo Sanchez Castro, who was a retired Colombian Air Force. This man went by the alias Hernando Sanchez, which if you remember, Donna had spoken to Hernando on the phone in the early days of Gary's disappearance. He is the one who met her at the Amtrak station and told her to stop talking to police. This is him. So he flew alongside Randy. This is where it's getting that web of confusion. Yes, this is where I'm like, there's a lot of people involved and Hernando also was the one who Randy brought to their daughter's christening so all these people she had met even before Gary went missing she had talked to them in the early days of the disappearance and then later she's finding out how involved they are in the drug world so There were signs that Daniel Jr. had gone rogue, but signs were often ignored by the FBI. Finally, another agent named Christopher Mazzala looked into the airlift file and described it being in disarray. When Daniel Jr. heard that they might shut down his operation, he and Sandini decided to steal over 200 kilograms of cocaine from a Colombian shipment and turn it over to the authorities to show them that they were doing good work. The FBI then gives this cocaine to the police department in Fort Lauderdale, and they made up a story about how this large amount of cocaine was discovered by a drug dog who sniffed it out in a parking lot, which I thought was interesting because it's like, do they often make up stories about how things are found? Yeah, I know. I mean, I Daniel Jr. was undercover, so I understand they couldn't like say the real story, but it just made me realize like, huh. They probably do that a lot. <laughs> yeah. Like they're just like, yeah, we found this. Our drug dog sniffed this out in a parking lot. How cool. Yeah. <laughs> now, regardless of this attempt to save Operation Airlift, the FBI still shuts it down on April 20th, 1983. This is the same year Gary goes missing. Two months later, Daniel Jr. resigns and continues drug smuggling with Sandini. And just months later that fall, Gary and Hiro are missing and likely murdered. In March of 1983 was when Randy's life in the drug world was causing him many problems. He first crashed a plane carrying marijuana due to a stray cow on the airstrip. And Sandini ordered Randy to pay $40,000 for the plane, so Randy started selling cocaine on the street. Randy also got involved with another big drug smuggler named Stanley Combs, who ran drug boats to and from the Bahamas. These two, Randy and Stanley Combs, they would be part of the reason Airlift was taken down. And because of that, Gary and Hyro may have been killed. This Stanley Combs guy, he was already working as an informant for the DEA, It was Combs who reported to Agent B.J. Church about men like Randy Sandini and Danny Maselli. And it didn't take long for B.J. Church to realize that Danny Maselli was FBI agent Daniel Mitrione on December 6th. So Stanley, he's an informant for the DEA. Randy, he's an informant for the FBI. And so they end up finding out that they're both informants. And they agree together to take down Sandini and Daniel Jr. So, on December 6th, 1983, Randy met with federal agents in Fort Lauderdale after he and Stanley Combs do this agreement to take Sandini and Daniel Jr. down. Randy ends up telling Sandini that he did talk with the DEA. So he was scared of Sandini and he thought instead of letting him find out that he was speaking with the DEA, that he would try to just let him know. But he claimed, like, I didn't say anything to incriminate you. Like, I talked with them, they asked to talk, but I didn't say anything about you or Daniel Jr. But then another drug smuggler learns that Randy had snitched. And soon, Randy has these multiple enemies in the drug world. That same week that Randy met with Agent BJ Church, his guys, Gary Weaver and Jairo Sanchez, are staying in the Bahamas at the home of Jeff Fisher. Remember, they had left for the Bahamas December 2nd. Randy talks to the DEA on December 6th. And three days later... Gary and Hiro are missing. They were just kind of down there. They were described as like being down there in the Bahamas as just sitting ducks while Randy snitched on these people who they're all involved with. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Then in April of 1984, so just a few months after, Sandini handed Daniel Jr. a wad of money and said that he had nothing to worry about. Daniel Jr. believed that this was in reference to the DEA case, but there was tension in the air. Sandini and Daniel Jr. no longer trusted each other. These men would never talk again after this. And they were like the power couple, like the FBI agent gone rogue and the guy he viewed as his like father figure. So they stopped talking after this. No one trusted each other. And only a couple days later, there is an explosive device found under Sandini's car. It had not exploded, but if it would have, Sandini would have been dead along with anyone else standing nearby. And apparently that night, Daniel Jr. like went to the Everglades, drove around and said he was contemplating suicide, which it turns out because he believed this bombing would be pinned on him, probably because he did it. And the lead investigator on this case, Dennis Reagan, immediately suspected Daniel Mitrione of the bombing. But the case was impossible to investigate without the help of the FBI and I guess they were not much help. About a year later in 1985, the FBI was finally investigating Operation Airlift and two agents end up coming to Donna's home to ask her what she knows they actually threaten her that if she doesn't tell them everything she has found out they'll quote throw her in front of the grand jury so fast that it will make your head spin so we can assume this wasn't a very pleasant interaction donna was not pleased with them and she has them leave her home she's like you're not gonna like intimidate me i didn't do anything yeah what did i do put me in front of the grand jury Yeah, she's probably like, okay, I want information on my husband's case. Take me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So eventually, Daniel Mitrione Jr. confesses to his role in the drug smuggling operation and he was arrested on drug and bribery charges. He pled guilty on March 14th, 1985 and was sentenced to six years in prison. He would only serve three of those years. He was never prosecuted for the attempted bombing or any other murders. People like Randy Kra and Stanley Combs, known as drug smugglers, they were spared prison sentences due to their cooperation. And we know they were both informants, so they didn't go to prison at all. Sandini, he was convicted on drug charges and he died in prison in 1990. There's way too much corruption that was discovered through all of these investigations for me to even detail here. And if you want an in depth reading on this case and so much more of the corruption, you can go find that four part series done by Bob Norman with the Miami New Times. And it's so much in our government, it's annoying. I know. Like, this is like with the FBI and everything. And it's just like they really swept things under the rug. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's corrupt. So 21 years after Gary Weaver disappeared, Donna met with the Bahamas Royal Police Force Superintendent Glenn Miller on April 26, 2005. He agreed to open an investigation. And I don't know what came of that, but, you know, their case, uh, Gary and Hiro's cases are not closed. So I don't think much came from that. And through the years, Donna was able to get a story directly from Stanley Combs. That is the man who helped Randy Crew take down Daniel Jr. and Sandini. Donna ended up knowing a man named Toby Leons, who apparently knew Stanley. Like, Stanley was one of Toby's best friends. And when Donna learns this, she asks Toby to talk to Stanley and ask if he knew anything. So he does, he asks about Gary Weaver, and Stanley tells Toby that Gary had been gunned down by the Italian guy known as Daniel, Daniel Mitrione. So the rogue FBI agent, he says, shot Gary Weaver. Stanley claimed that the murder took place on Andros Island near a plane runway and that Gary was buried right there where he was killed. Stanley did not want to meet with Donna, though. And so she kind of gets this story. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. It does make sense. Like, he called from the airport. I could much rather see him being shot than pushed out of a plane. Yeah. And then just buried right there. So to me, that's probably is likely what happened. You know, and it's three days after Randy snitched on Daniel Jr. Like, it just makes sense. And it's like, how does this happen around an airport? I know. It is so... It's so crazy. And now, with that information, Donna did call the Coral Springs Police Department and report it to Nick Iarico, who had reopened the missing missing persons case. However, the investigator never did get in contact with Stanley Coombs. And on May 26, 2004... Donna decides to find the number for Daniel Mitrione's mother. And she just called. She called Henrietta, Daniel's mom. She didn't know what else to do. And she just wanted to talk with him. By this point, he's out of prison. He only served three years. So Daniel Mitrione, he actually ends up calling Donna back. And she played it like she thought Sandini killed Gary. But Daniel says there was no way it was Sandini. He tells her that it was Randy Crew and the Columbians. So those are kind of the two stories she gets in the end. To me, the first one makes more sense because Randy did snitch on Daniel Jr. And like Randy was Gary's like lifelong best friend. So I would hope it wasn't Randy. (laughs) I know, because why would Randy? Yeah, I think Daniel had more incentive to murder them to get back at Randy. Yeah. And that's kind of where it ends. Like, there's really never specific closure. I think there's a lot you can pick up and guess. And that's that. Uh, I hate the non-closure ones. I know. And it's sad because, like, yeah, he got involved with the drug smuggling, but I just... I Well, just for his I wife. don't think he really knew how big it was. Yeah. Like... He wanted to provide for his kids. I think he was like, okay, hey, this is good money. Like his best friend was doing it. I don't think he n- just knew how big the operation was. It's also sad that so many years later, she's tried to find answers. Yeah. And then that quote kind of makes sense with what that Lisa lady said. Like it's not, it will never be in our national best interest to release the information. Why? Because the FBI was so involved because... There's like so much corruption and so much murders that it seems they knew about that they did nothing and they like protected these informants and they protected their rogue agent and it's just weird. Yeah. <laughs> and I did not expect all of that going into this case. So you learned a lot. Yeah, I really did. So it's a very sad case of Gary Weaver and Hiro Sanchez. I'm Kayla, and I research, write, host, and edit this show. My co-host is Alicia Jenkins. Our palette cleanser giver is Charlie Waters. And all of our music was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at InPajamasMusic. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at TrueCrimeXPod, TrueCrimeEXPod, and on TikTok at TrueCrimeExposedPodcast. Hi. Hi. I'm Charlie Waters. Today I will be giving you a palate cleanser about roses. Also, my mom's favorite rose. I mean flower. You can eat every rose out there. They are all edible if you want to try some. They are probably one of the oldest flowers. And they are England's national flower. Aren't roses beautiful? Bye! Have a great day or night. If you visit circlesofcomfort.org, you're going to find the Circles of Comfort organization. This is based in Florida, and it is a social services division. They welcome primary or secondary victims to call their office, which is 904-630-6300 any weekday, Um, And you can schedule an appointment to see an advocate. They have advocates that can offer services, referrals to other agencies, or financial assistance. So if you are in Florida in the Jacksonville area, you can get a hold of Circles of Comfort um, if you are a primary or secondary victim of crime.